Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Tuesday, April 11th, 2023, the 811th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't, or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free a couple of days later on a wide variety of podcast platforms and, of course, Rumble. All I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So let's begin today with a journey into the false reality, into a total inversion, 
within the false reality. A couple of years ago, during the Black Lives Matter very peaceful protests in Austin, Texas, an Uber driver was guided to venture into the heart of the BLM rioters in downtown Austin. And his car was stopped. He was approached by the mob. One of them in front of his car raised up an AK-47, pointed it at him. And the driver, being a former army sergeant and legally armed, shot the man who was pointing a loaded AK-47 right at him. And the Uber driver, whose name is Daniel Perry, killed the AK-47 wielding BLM protester in self-defense. Now, last week, Daniel Perry, the Uber driver, was convicted of murder, prosecuted by a Soros-installed district attorney in Austin, Texas. The lead detective on the case claimed in an affidavit that that Soros district attorney directed him to remove exculpatory information that he had intended to present in his grand jury testimony. After shooting the man with the AK-47 who was threatening Daniel Perry's life, Perry drove a couple of blocks, stopped, called the police, and turned himself in. And now he is being portrayed as a murderer, being convicted of murder. And naturally, in the false reality, the mainstream media must rush to the defense of the man who was killed in self-defense by Daniel Perry. What else could it mean to have the right to defend yourself if you are not allowed to shoot someone who is pointing a gun at you and threatening you as part of a mob that has surrounded your vehicle? And by the way, there is photographic and video evidence of this event taking place. But here's how MSNBC portrayed it. This is Mara Gay with Morning Mika. NBC's Dana Griffin with that report. Mara Gay, what's going on here? Your thoughts? Oh, I mean, my first thought is that we just have too many guns in America. And uh, it, how tragic that uh, we could have somebody who would be so irresponsible, um, you know, in such a heated situation, just add a gun into that. And this is what this is the tragedy that you get. And it does. Now, I have to stop right there because I know that this maybe sounds confusing from the beginning. You're thinking she's talking about the BLM rioter, right? The white man who is on the side of BLM Antifa raising a loaded AK-47 at an Uber driver who is just passing through. That must be who she's talking about, adding a gun into an already heated situation. There are too many guns in our society. This is a heated moment. Why in the world would you add a gun to it? And that might be a relevant point if you're talking about the BLM Antifa rioters. But because we're in the false reality, she's actually talking about Daniel Perry, the Uber driver who had a loaded AK-47 pointed at him from about eight feet away. Just wanted to make sure that was clear. You have to be this way. You know, the Black Lives Matter protests were overwhelmingly peaceful protests about the dignity of human lives. That's what that was about. And instead, we're sitting here several years later 
um, having to talk about uh, these this family that's been devastated and left behind because of that. And so there's that. And then my other thought is that, you know, I think the word that was used in the segment was the short circuiting of the justice system. And that's exactly right. I and mean, we've always known in this country that um, for those who are powerful, um, have often abused or been able to abuse the criminal justice system um, for their own whims and political purposes and ends. And that's what Governor Abbott appears to be doing here now. Now, again, I understand you're probably like, OK, well, what she's saying is making sense, right? The justice system can get totally distorted and skewed and used for the benefit of the powerful people And now we have this grave injustice that can not only destroy families, but can destroy society if it spreads. You have a George Soros installed district attorney who prevents a defendant from adding exculpatory evidence into his criminal defense for murder while he was defending his life from a man who had a loaded AK-47 pointed at him from eight feet away. But no, the circumvention of the justice system is by Texas Governor Greg Abbott because he responded to this verdict over the weekend by saying, I am working as quickly as Texas law allows regarding the pardon of Sergeant Perry. Texas has one of the strongest stand your ground laws of self-defense that cannot be nullified by a jury or a progressive district attorney. Unlike the president or some other states, The Texas Constitution limits the governor's pardon authority to only act on a recommendation by the Board of Pardons and Paroles. Texas law does allow the governor to request the Board of Pardons and Paroles to determine if a person should be granted a pardon. I have made that request and instructed the board to expedite its review. I look forward to approving the board's pardon recommendation as soon as it hits my desk. Additionally, I've already prioritized reining in rogue district attorneys and the Texas legislature is working on laws to achieve that goal. So it's good, at least that Greg Abbott is doing something here and has mentioned that he is on the side of Daniel Perry in one of the most ridiculous and unjustified convictions that I think anybody could ever encounter. But the communist on MSNBC thinks that Abbott is the one circumventing the judicial system. Just want to be sure we're keeping all this straight. Listen, if there is a legitimate review that is done through the process and there's a pardon, I may disagree with it, but that's that's how the system works. But to short circuit that just on the front end, it's obviously political and it really sends a painful message to those people, not just for the family of those who we lost, of the person we lost, but also the protesters who were out there that day, that their lives really don't matter. And that's really, that's what this message is about. And so we're supposed to have a justice system that works for everybody. This is blatantly political, blatantly unfair. It's really hard um, when you are proud of your country and then you see things like this happen. And it's just one of those hard moments. Um, We're full of contradictions and, and I just, we don't have to have guns in the street everywhere the way that we do um nobody else lives this way in the modern world yep nakedly political sure she's right about that no one has to have guns in the street she says well 
The man with the gun in the street was the man with the AK-47 who was part of the BLM Antifa mob. Daniel Perry had his gun in his car for self-defense just on the rare instance that while in his car, someone might approach his car pointing a loaded AK-47 at him. That's why the gun was in his car for situations like that. The gun in the streets that was totally unnecessary was the one being carried by the BLM Antifa domestic terrorist. But that's not the craziest part of this video, which again exists in a total inversion within a false reality. The craziest part is that she is essentially saying black lives matters, lives matter. That is her justification for why Daniel Perry should spend his life in prison for defending himself from a man who was pointing a loaded AK-47 at him. And let's play that out a little bit because she said that the BLM Antifa riots were mostly peaceful. And if that were true, which it is not because they looted and burned, they assaulted, they took over entire sections of cities and made them lawless dens of drug use and sexual assault. But even if they were mostly peaceful, it is irrefutably true that pointing a loaded AK-47 at a random Uber driver who just happens to be driving down the street that you have claimed as yours as part of your very peaceful protest, well, that's absolutely not peaceful. But nonetheless, she's saying because he is part of a protest that is branded as peaceful, but also branded as being somehow in favor of black lives, even though Black Lives Matter has done absolutely nothing to improve the lives of black Americans. All they've done is spread violence and criminality and communism, even though he is literally carelessly and lawlessly wielding an actual assault rifle, an AK-47, he not only qualifies as mostly peaceful, he also qualifies as mostly black, apparently, because the lives of the protesters matter the same way black lives matter, according to Black Lives Matter and the supporters of Black Lives Matter, like MSNBC's Mara Gay. You know, because he's on the good side and the good side is the Black Lives Matter side. Sure, it's a domestic terrorist organization. Sure, they are literally funded and directed to destabilize societies just as parallel groups in other countries are. But it would be nakedly political of me to not understand that he has the same moral quality as every black life on their side that matters because they agree because they're on that side of the nakedly political. It becomes no longer a political thing. Now he is in some sense, just as black as actual black people. And that means that he can't do anything wrong. And once you've accepted that logic, well, that means that anyone who shares their politics can do whatever the hell they want without any recourse up to and including threatening your life with a loaded AK-47 
Nothing you can do about it. Can't defend yourself. Can't even get mad at it. If you get mad at it, well, you're at minimum at risk of being canceled. Because even considering shooting a white man with a loaded AK-47 pointed at you from eight feet away in self-defense is racism. If he claims to be on the side of Black Lives Matter and engaged in peaceful protest while wielding the gun on the street with violent intentions as part of a very peaceful protest. Black Lives Matter's lives matter. And because they matter more than everybody else's lives, that means everyone on the side of Black Lives Matter can do whatever they want forever. And it is a circumvention of our justice system to say any different. Now, let's get into some geopolitics and discuss the collapse of the global world order. And sometimes it's called the new world order. Sometimes it's called the liberal world order. But the point is, there is a world order and it is all the same thing, or at least it's supposed to be. That's what they want. Hilariously, even Senator John Kennedy from Louisiana, the guy who always makes those funny little Southern quips on TV, he was talking about China and he said that we might need to go to war with China so that we can preserve our global world order. I wonder what he's talking about. Was he agreeing with the regime? It kind of sounds like he was. And I mean, he has agreed with the regime before, but you wouldn't expect a person with a Southern accent like that and a witty sense of humor to be saying things like global world order. But he sure did. Anyway, this is from Sunday in Politico. Europe must resist pressure to become America's followers, says Macron. Europe must reduce its dependency on the United States and avoid getting dragged into a confrontation between China and the U.S. over Taiwan. French President Emmanuel Macron said in an interview on his plane back from a three-day visit to China. That's amazing, isn't it? He's down for everything. The Green New Deal, Build Back Better, War in Ukraine. But he goes over to China for a few days and he comes back and says, you know, I really don't think we should get involved in that whole China-Taiwan thing. Smart, Manny. Speaking with Politico and two French journalists after spending around six hours with Chinese President Xi Jinping during his trip, Macron emphasized his pet theory of strategic autonomy for Europe, presumably led by France, to become a third superpower. He said the great risk Europe faces is that it gets caught up in crises that are not ours, which prevents it from building its strategic autonomy. While flying from Beijing to Guangzhou in southern China aboard France's version of Air Force One, which is basically a normal plane, but socialist and smoke cigarettes. The paradox would be that, overcome with panic, we believe we are just America's followers, Macron said in the interview. The question Europeans need to answer, is it in our interest to accelerate a crisis on Taiwan? No. The worst thing would be to think that we Europeans must become followers on this topic and take our cue from the U.S. agenda and a Chinese overreaction, he said. Just hours after his flight left Guangzhou, headed back to Paris, China launched large military exercises around the self-ruled island of Taiwan, 
which China claims as its territory, but the U.S. has promised to arm and defend. And by the way, U.S. policy, as is always worth remembering, is that there is one China and that Taiwan is part of that China. And then we have an informal policy that says Taiwan is totally its own nation, separate and distinct from China. It is a democracy whose sovereignty we must protect, same as Ukraine. Those exercises were a response to Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen's 10-day diplomatic tour of Central American countries that included a meeting with Republican U.S. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy while she transited in California. People familiar with Macron's thinking said he was happy Beijing had at least waited until he was out of Chinese airspace before launching the simulated Taiwan encirclement exercise. Beijing has repeatedly threatened to invade in recent years and has a policy of isolating the democratic island by forcing other countries to recognize it as part of one China. But that's what our country does. Our country recognizes Taiwan formally as part of one China. Macron and Xi discussed Taiwan intensely, according to French officials accompanying the president, who appears to have taken a more conciliatory approach than the U.S. or even the European Union. Stability in the Taiwan Strait is of paramount importance. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, who accompanied Macron for part of his visit, said she told she during their meeting in Beijing last Thursday. The threat of the use of force to change the status quo is unacceptable, says a woman who is utterly powerless when it comes to China. And by the way, since we're talking about the European Union and China, neither of which are the United States, perhaps it's easier to see in this framing that there is no reason in the world why the head of the European Union is in any position to be telling China, what to do about Taiwan, which is recognized essentially worldwide as part of China. She responded by saying anyone who thought they could influence Beijing on Taiwan was deluded. Macron appears to agree with that assessment. Europeans cannot resolve the crisis in Ukraine. How can we credibly say on Taiwan, watch out, if you do something wrong, we will be there? That's a good question. If you really want to increase tensions, that's the way to do it, he said. And Emmanuel Macron is suddenly sounding very smart, very with it, very understanding of what the reality beyond the media narrative actually is. Europe is more willing to accept a world in which China becomes a regional hegemon, said Yan Mei Shi, a geopolitics analyst at Gavakal Dragonomics. Some of its leaders even believe such a world order may be more advantageous to Europe. And I love when they reach the point where their plan is no longer possible. So they begin to tell other people that this is what they really wanted the whole time. We talked last week about how Ukraine offering to finally give up Crimea was like saying you're breaking up with your girlfriend eight years after she left. This is basically revising it to the point where you say that you actually kicked her out eight years ago. In his trilateral meeting with Macron and von der Leyen last Thursday in Beijing, Xi Jinping went off script on only two topics, Ukraine and Taiwan, according to someone who was present in the room. Whose script 
do they think that she is reading? By the way, he went off script. What does that mean? She was visibly annoyed for being held responsible for the Ukraine conflict, and he downplayed his recent visit to Moscow, this person said. He was clearly enraged by the U.S. and very upset over Taiwan, by the Taiwanese president's transit through the U.S., and the fact that foreign policy issues were being raised by Europeans. In this meeting, Macron and von der Leyen took similar lines on Taiwan, this person said. But Macron subsequently spent more than four hours with the Chinese leader, much of it with only translators present, and his tone was far more conciliatory than von der Leyen's when speaking with journalists. So it sounds like Manny Mac had a little private session with Xi Jinping and was read the riot act and came out of the meeting much better behaved. Macron also argued that Europe had increased its dependency on the U.S. for weapons and energy and must now focus on boosting European defense industries, (laughs) except that's not really possible, is it? If you're already dependent on a foreign country supplying weapons and energy and still losing spectacularly. He also suggested Europe should reduce its dependence on the extraterritoriality of the U.S. dollar, a key policy objective of both Moscow and Beijing. Isn't that interesting? One of the world's most powerful leaders, Emmanuel Macron, part of the European Union, is concerned that he also needs to reduce dependence on the dollar, something both Moscow and Beijing see as a key policy objective. But don't worry, the global world order is very strong. The global regime's fiat currency is still going to be the world's reserve currency. And despite turning all of their intelligence over to the enemy and now just releasing it into the wild, they are still going to win in Ukraine. Don't you see how powerful and leveraged the position of the Europeans is? And don't you see the power and leverage of the fake administration? The fake administration is so strong that Emmanuel Macron is like, hey, yeah, I'm going to do what the uh, what the Russians and the Chinese say. It's only prudent. If the tensions between the two superpowers heat up, we won't have the time nor the resources to finance our strategic autonomy, and we will become vassals, he said. That's France, concerned about becoming a vassal state of either the United States or China. Russia, China, and Iran and other countries have been hit by U.S. sanctions in recent years that are based on denying access to the dominant dollar-denominated global financial system. Some in Europe have complained about weaponization of the dollar by Washington, which forces European companies to give up business and cut ties with third countries or face crippling secondary sanctions. And this is what we talked about yesterday. One dominant, manipulable, centralized currency allows for the cheating by the global regime to subjugate all the nations of the world. And that really is the ultimate battle here. It's their money and their control, centralized, dominant, manipulable versus sovereign nations working for the good of their people and using the currencies that their trading partners are willing to trade with. 
It's also worth noting that the sanctions didn't work at all. And the countries that were sanctioned are moving away from that system so that the sanctions become literally nothing. The effect of the sanctions is baked in. They didn't work. And there is no potential new sanction that can or will work. And we have seen them try and fail. Russia's currency is now stronger than it was before the very brutal invasion and the sanctions that followed. While sitting in the stateroom of his A-330 aircraft in a hoodie with the words French tech emblazoned on the chest, Macron claimed to have already, quote, won the ideological battle on strategic autonomy for Europe. Well, I have never thought of Emmanuel Macron as an ally of the sovereign movement, but it sure does sound like he's starting to speak the language. He did not address the question of ongoing U.S. security guarantees for the continent, which relies heavily on American defense assistance amid the first major land war in Europe since World War II. He didn't address the question. What does that mean? Isn't he part of this NATO alliance that had been reunified by the fake president? What do you mean, Emmanuel Macron, that you cannot address the status of U.S. security guarantees for Europe? That's what NATO's all about. Are you saying that NATO might be collapsing? Very, very strange indeed. As one of the five permanent members of the U.N. Security Council and the only nuclear power in the EU, France is in a unique position militarily. However, the country has contributed far less to the defense of Ukraine against Russia's invasion than many other countries. Now, I don't want to say that Emmanuel Macron sounds like he went over to China to be made she's bitch because... I like that he's talking about national sovereignty, even multinational sovereignty, like a sort of European sovereignty. Maybe that's a positive step forward. And I would love if Macron saw the light and began working in a positive way to, first of all, remove himself from government forever, but also to create a more sovereign Europe and a more sovereign France. And I would hate to call someone doing that. She's bitch, nor do I want to sound like I am empowering Xi Jinping. I'm just attempting to translate what the regime communists at Politico are saying. And so along the same lines, I did not have a chance to get to this last week, but this is from April 3rd in the Wall Street Journal. Saudi Arabia's oil production cuts reflect cost of reshaping economy. An oil production cut by Saudi Arabia and its allies demonstrated how Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman is willing to set aside U.S. concerns to pursue a nationalist energy policy aimed at funding an expensive makeover of his kingdom. That bastard. How could he be looking out for his own country and not us? Doesn't he know that the global regime owns Saudi Arabia and has always owned Saudi Arabia and always will own Saudi Arabia? Oh, wait, that was only true before. And now it's not true. I wonder what happened. Was it Mohammed bin Salman and Donald Trump or did something else change? This weekend's move came as a surprise after Saudi energy minister Prince 
Abdulaziz bin Salman, told industry analysts privately in February that the kingdom would tolerate oil prices slipping to around $65 or $70 a barrel, according to analysts and Saudi officials familiar with the matter. Brent crude, the international benchmark, was trending downward since late last year on global recession fears, nearing $70 a barrel last month. On Monday, oil prices posted their steepest one-day increase in more than a year, rising 6.3% to 84.93 a barrel. It's the second time in less than six months that the Saudis have disregarded U.S. concerns, despite significant potential ramifications on the bilateral relationship that elevated oil prices would help fuel Russia's war machine. Now, that framing is really important. So Saudi Arabia has ignored U.S. concerns twice in the last six months. Saudi Arabia basically treated Joe Biden like he was some tin pot dictator from an irrelevant country because Joe Biden is a tin pot dictator. And to that extent, he does not carry the gravitas of a leader of a relevant country, which is why they don't treat him like one. But they're saying that MBS is acting this way, even despite the potential ramifications in their bilateral relationship. Joe Biden, the U.S., in quotes, is not going to like him anymore. That's what they're saying. And somehow he's also not bending to the pressure they're putting on him by saying, you're going to help Russia if you do this. I'm sure he's quaking in his boots. Sunday's production cut is the clearest signal yet that the Saudis will do whatever it takes to keep oil prices at levels that benefit them. Yes, it's all about money. Prince Mohammed is implementing what analysts label a Saudi first economic policy aimed at giving priority to national interests at a time of growing uncertainty about the U.S. commitment to defend its Middle Eastern allies amid increased great power competition in the region. Now, wait a second. We just did the Emmanuel Macron article in Politico where Macron expressed some confusion or indifference or unwillingness to discuss the United States guarantees of European defense. And now we're hearing the exact same thing in the Middle East. So the U.S. is not going to defend its European allies, and it's also not going to defend its Middle Eastern allies, but it might still defend Taiwan. You get it? Everybody on board? We're going to war soon. China, very scary. Taiwan, very important. Open that little hatch in the back of the NPC skull. Pull out the little Ukraine chip. Put the Taiwan chip in. Wind them up and just let them keep going. You also got to love how they're just straight up calling it Saudi first at this point. Prince Mohammed told associates late last year that he was no longer interested in pleasing the U.S., saying he wants something in return for anything he gives Washington, according to people familiar with the conversation. And not to go off on too far a tangent here, but every time you hear that qualifier at the end of one of these ideas that they're reporting, you should notice it. A person familiar with the conversation, a person familiar with the matter, there is nothing substantively different between saying a person familiar with the matter and saying my sister's cousin's friend's co-worker. It's basically just somebody said. And let's just make sure we understand the relationship here, right? 
So Mohammed bin Salman is saying he is no longer interested in pleasing the United States. Now the relationship will be if they want something, we get something too. What does that say the relationship was before Mohammed bin Salman took over as crown prince? That says that the global regime as enacted and branded through the United States of America had full control over Saudi Arabia and they could tell Saudi Arabia what to do to the point where Saudi Arabia could not even demand anything in return. He is now saying, I don't care about pleasing that regime. They can ask me to do things. If I want to do them, I will do them. If I don't want to do them, I will not do them. And from that posture, he allowed the fake president, the illegitimate president of the United States, Joe Biden, to travel to Saudi Arabia, be treated like an irrelevant tin pot dictator and send him away with absolutely nothing but a fist bump. So not only is Mohammed bin Salman no longer the bitch of the regime, Joe Biden can't even rise to the level of being Mohammed bin Salman's bitch. Biden bitched out and got nothing for it. And the article goes on. It goes deeper into the oil policy. You can find this article on the info stream on Telegram, t.me slash I'm your moderator. I posted the archived version from the Wall Street Journal. This is the one that you can read from behind the paywall. You will find the link in the info stream. But one more paragraph is worth reading. Officials and other people familiar with Saudi oil policy say Riyadh's move wasn't a surprise, as it needs to defend higher prices to pay for massive development projects at home, some of which are so big that the Saudis call them giga projects. These include a Red Sea resort the size of Belgium with Maldives style hotels hovering above the water and a $500 billion futuristic high tech city in the desert that is 33 times bigger than New York City. 33 times bigger. That's interesting. It's not 32. It's not 34. 33 times bigger. But what's funny about that paragraph is that they're trying to claim that this move is being made because they need to build these fancy new massive cities and projects. And it's got nothing to do with the state of the world and the fact that the fake president has no leverage anywhere. Really, the leverage is gone from Russia. It's gone from China. It's gone from India. It's gone from Iran and from North Korea. And now we're finding out that he has no leverage over Saudi Arabia or Europe. And this is a natural consequence of what the fake and illegitimate administration has been doing in league with the global regime. There is no real world justification that would support Joe Biden's leverage anywhere in the world because Joe Biden is an absolute failure. He is the puppet frontman of a collapsing regime worldwide whose own war plans with other countries in Europe were just leaked to the public after being found on a discord server. And here's another interesting development just this afternoon. This is from the BBC, state media for the UK. Trudeau Foundation leadership resigns over China-linked donation. The leadership of a charitable foundation named after former Canadian Prime Minister Pierre Elliott Trudeau has abruptly resigned over scrutiny of a donation with alleged ties to Beijing. 
The Trudeau Foundation said on Tuesday the political climate surrounding the 2016 donation, quote, made it impossible to continue with the status quo. It returned the donation last month, only seven years later. The sudden resignation comes as Canada grapples with allegations of election meddling by Beijing. Wait, what? Election meddling by China is a conspiracy theory. That same conspiracy theory is in Canada. How could it be? The same false conspiratorial claims are just popping up in other countries. And of course they are because the same system of election fraud is implemented with slight variations all across the world just like the color revolutions are. I've said this many times. If you haven't tried it yourself, please go ahead and give it a try. Go to any search engine. You can even use the search engine of ignorant and brain dead communists, Google, and conduct this experiment. Type in Reuters, followed by the name of basically any country in the entire world, and follow that with election fraud claims. Hit that little enter button and you will see the results from Reuters, you can pull up those results and read the stories about election fraud claims in countries all around the world, and you will find consistently that they are the same claims over and over and over again in all of these countries. As always, there are some variations. We have BLM Antifa. There are other communist domestic terrorism organizations in other countries that work to destabilize those countries. In many countries, they will call them terrorists. In many countries, they will call them immigrants. They will talk about sectarian religious violence. Each country has its own little twists, but the stories are all the same. The election fraud is all the same. And most importantly, the coverage from the global state propaganda media from all around the world in all these different countries is all the same. The same media organizations telling the same stories about claims of election fraud all over the world. How does something like that happen at random? Did Donald Trump do that? Did QAnon do that? How did it happen? Turns out Reuters did it. And all you have to do is notice the charity, a scholarship organization created to fund doctoral researchers was founded over two decades ago in memory of former Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau, Justin Trudeau's father. Now, Pierre Trudeau is not Justin Trudeau's father. Fidel Castro is. If you don't believe that, all you have to do is research. You will see that Justin Trudeau and Fidel Castro look exactly alike, whereas Justin Trudeau looks absolutely nothing like Pierre Trudeau. You will also see Justin Trudeau's mother, embracing Fidel Castro in various pictures, looking at him lovingly with attraction in her eyes, visiting Cuba at the very moment when Justin Trudeau would have been conceived. You can even see her talking about what a great and attractive and powerful and virile man Fidel Castro is. We are essentially at the only point in the history of the world where anyone would view this situation rationally and objectively and side with the television, side with the reports, side with what we are told that Justin Trudeau is Pierre Trudeau's son. It's actually kind of the real life version of King Joffrey from Game of Thrones. King Joffrey had blonde hair and was the progeny 
of Cersei Lannister with her brother, Jamie Lannister, and clearly not of her husband, Robert Baratheon. And it is a rumor throughout the kingdom. No one can say it's true because you'll get your head chopped off for saying it, but everybody knows it. The same situation is at work here. The only reason people don't believe it is because they don't like to admit that everybody's been lied to in exactly the same way. And they would rather protect this construct of massive widespread lies than ever admit that they've fallen for one of them. It is a very strange bet to make in an era where the truth is coming to light about virtually everything in our world in a way that is unstoppable. I certainly understand the ego-based justification for not wanting to be made to look like a fool, but they're coming down on the wrong side of that equation. And as this situation develops and advances worldwide through this awakening, this spreading of information, this spreading of truth, it becomes really clear that that's the bad bet. You are going to look like you were fooled not just once or twice or a few times, but you were fooled about absolutely everything. And it turns out you're one of the last people on earth to realize it. Justin Trudeau, who became Canada's prime minister in 2015, has no involvement in the organization. In February, the Globe and Mail newspaper, based on anonymous sources, reported that two wealthy Chinese businessmen gave 200,000 Canadian dollars, which is $148,000, to the foundation, a payment allegedly orchestrated by Beijing. While the money was recently refunded, politics around the donation and wider concern over Chinese interference put a great deal of pressure on the foundation's volunteer board and CEO, Pascal Fournier, said the organization in a statement announcing their resignation. Mr. Trudeau has faced calls to launch a national inquiry after leaked intelligence reports suggested that China attempted to interfere in the 2019 and 2021 general elections. The alleged interference is not believed to have changed the election outcomes. Isn't that incredible? In March, Mr. Trudeau launched a series of probes to investigate the claims and named a special rapporteur to look into foreign interference in the last two general elections. China has denied the claims, calling them purely baseless and defamatory. The news also comes ahead of a scheduled appearance on Friday by Mr. Trudeau's chief of staff before a parliamentary committee looking into suspected foreign election interference. The same story being repeated over and over again throughout the world. But I know, I know, it's just one massive recurring coincidence that happens over and over again everywhere, and I'm a conspiracy theorist. Now, Justin Castro, as he is more appropriately called, was asked about this in a press conference today, and here's how that went down. In regards to the CEO and the board of directors resigning from the Trudeau Foundation, um, given that politicize, uh, given that they cited politicization, will you continue to appoint people connected to the foundation to do work for your government? Those people who are trying to get short-term political gain by increasing polarization and partisanship in this country by launching completely unfounded and ungrounded 
uh, attacks against uh, charities or uh, foundations um, must not succeed. Canada is a place uh, where um, we support good works of all different types um, and we need to continue to do that. Uh, I, am, I have no doubt that the Trudeau Foundation, like foundations and charities that conservative politicians have attacked in the past, uh, will continue to do the excellent work that it will do. But as I've said many times, um, it's a foundation in my father's name that I have uh, no direct or indirect connection with. So an organization carrying the name of Justin Castro's fake father took donations from the Chinese Communist Party for his educational organization that are somehow related also to election interference by the CCP has no connection whatsoever to Justin Castro, not directly or indirectly. That's what he says. That word or is doing a lot of work there, just as it was earlier in his little spiel where he says charities or foundations as if those are the same thing. Now, you have to embrace the global communist mind for a second. In the global communist mind, these foundations, these charitable organizations Well, those are fronts for their money laundering. This is how they shift money around and funnel money into whatever causes they need that money funneled into. And we talk about the very best people on earth all the time. You know, the philanthropists and all of their organizations, their foundations. Many of them are run by corporate titans who have transnational corporations in direct partnership with the World Economic Forum. But that's what the word charity is for, because once you begin calling it a charity, that means that you can't say anything bad about it because charities are inherently good no matter what they do. That is the framing you are supposed to accept. You can't get mad at me because I'm not connected directly or indirectly to this organization that just happens to bear my fake father's name. And even if you are silly enough to make that mistake and somehow connect me to the organization that does bear my name too, you should know that you're not just attacking an organization that may or may not have been involved with foreign election interference. You're going after a charity. And if you're going after a charity, well, that means that you hate the less fortunate. And okay, Kami, I guess I would probably be saying the same sorts of things if I had to lie to the world throughout my entire life about the fact that my real father was a brutal communist dictator. And truth be told, I'm kind of a brutal communist dictator too. And speaking about what happens in brutal communist dictatorships, this letter was sent by Jim Jordan in his capacity as the chairman of the House Committee on the Weaponization of the U.S. Government against the American citizenry. It's addressed to FBI Director Christopher Wray. The Committee on the Judiciary is conducting oversight of the Federal Bureau of Investigation's handling of domestic violent extremism investigations against Catholic Americans and its effect on protected First Amendment activity. Based on the limited information produced by the FBI to the committee, we now know that the FBI relied on at least one undercover agent 
to produce its analysis and that the FBI proposed that its agents engage in outreach to Catholic parishes to develop sources among the clergy and church leadership to inform on Americans practicing their faith. This shocking information reinforces our need for all responsive documents, and the committee is issuing a subpoena to you to compel your full cooperation. We have repeatedly sought information from the FBI related to a January 23rd, 2023 document generated by the Richmond Field Office entitled Interest of Racially or Ethnically Motivated Violent Extremists in Radical Traditionalist Catholic Ideology Almost Certainly Presents New Mitigation Opportunities. They will refer to this in the rest of the letter as the FBI's Richmond document. In this document, the FBI purported to categorize Catholic Americans based on theological distinctions and relied on the Southern Poverty Law Center to suggest that certain kinds of Catholic Americans may be domestic terrorists. On February 16th, 2023, we first wrote to you requesting documents and information to inform our oversight. After receiving no response, we reiterated our outstanding requests in a subsequent letter dated March 20th, 2023. On March 23rd, 2023, we received a substandard and partial response consisting of only 18 pages, many with significant redactions of, quote, personally identifiable information or, quote, specific non-public information about FBI investigations, sources and methods that prevents the committee from fully assessing the content and context of the documents and obtaining information requested from the Bureau. So the FBI can't comply with congressional oversight and give them information about how this document that talks about FBI agents basically working the clergy and church leadership of various Catholic churches to get them to inform on their own parishioners. We can't see that information because the FBI needs to protect its sources and methods. The same excuse as always. The limited information that was provided to the committee makes clear that we must possess all responsive material without redactions. From this selective production, we know that the FBI, relying on information derived from at least one undercover employee, sought to use local religious organizations as new avenues for tripwire and source development. For example, in a section of the document entitled Opportunities, the FBI wrote, in addition to, redacted, engage in outreach to the leadership of other Society of St. Pius X chapels in the FBI Richmond area of responsibility to sensitize these congregations to the warning signs of radicalization and to enlist their assistance to serve as suspicious activity tripwires. So the FBI wants information on members of these congregations and they're trying to get the priests and church leaders to do it. At some point, people are going to have to just accept what this is. We are past the point of understanding. It is right up in your face. All you have to do is notice. The FBI similarly noted two other opportunities to engage in outreach with religious institutions in the Richmond area, citing a desire to, quote, sensitize the congregation to the warning signs of radicalization and enlist their assistance 
to serve as suspicious activity tripwires. This outreach plan even included contacting so-called, quote, mainline Catholic parishes and the leadership of local dioceses. The FBI also expressed an interest in, quote, leveraging existing sources and or initiating type five assessments to develop new sources with the placement and access, end quote, to report on suspicious activity. This information is outrageous and only reinforces the committee's need for all FBI material responsive to our request. The documents produced to date show how the FBI sought to enlist Catholic houses of worship as potential sources to monitor and report on their parishioners. Americans attend church to worship and congregate for their spiritual and personal betterment. They must be free to exercise their fundamental First Amendment rights without worrying that the FBI may have planted so-called tripwire sources or other informants in their houses of worship. Although the FBI claims to have numerous and rigorous policies to protect First Amendment rights, the FBI's Richmond document plainly undercuts these assertions. The document itself shows that its contents, including its proposal to develop sources in Catholic churches, were reviewed and approved by two senior intelligence analysts and even the local chief division counsel. We know from whistleblowers that the FBI distributed this document to field offices across the country. It is unclear, however, how many FBI employees explored, quote, new avenues for tripwire and source development in Catholic houses of worship across the country as a result of the FBI's Richmond document. The Supreme Court has recognized that Congress has a, quote, broad and indispensable, end quote, power to conduct oversight, which, quote, encompasses inquiries into the administration of existing laws, studies of proposed laws and surveys in our social, economic or political system for the purpose of enabling Congress to remedy them, end quote. Pursuant to the rules of the House of Representatives, the committee is authorized to conduct oversight of the Justice Department and FBI, including with respect to the agency's use of law enforcement and counterterrorism resources and their policies to protect civil liberties to inform potential legislative reforms. These potential legislative reforms could include, among other proposals, legislation to prescribe how federal law enforcement entities investigate constitutionally protected activity, legislation to educate federal law enforcement personnel on civil liberty protections or legislation to prevent the misuse of federal law enforcement and counterterrorism resources in the future. The information we have requested about the FBI's Richmond document is necessary to inform such potential legislation. Accordingly, and in light of your disregard of our earlier voluntary requests, please find attached the subpoena for the requested documents and information. And it's at moments like these that it's good we got the communists on record about Congress's ability to enforce its subpoenas throughout the sham January 6th committee episode. Again, everybody always freaks out while this stuff is happening. But the truth is, anything they do must now necessarily end up snapping back in their face. They are in a desperate panicked situation in an existential crisis. They continue to go more extreme in order to fix and solve these problems. And in doing so, they become more obvious in what they're doing. They call attention to themselves and increase the likelihood of their own downfall by the very same processes in the future. 
This is the phenomenon we see replicate over and over and over again. All you have to do is notice and not to be repetitive, but it really is worth understanding what it means when the illegitimate and unelected government begins to attempt to develop priests and church leadership as informants against their own parishioners. This is the stuff of every single dystopian novel ever written and dystopian movie ever made. It is also something that we are aware happens in other countries, including, by the way, in Ukraine right now and in places throughout the world in our history, communist China, communist Russia, Nazi Germany. And I would bet that Justin Trudeau's actual father has dabbled in it, too. Along the same lines, this was released yesterday by America First Legal. The headline on their website, America First Legal's investigation reveals the Biden White House was involved with the Mar-a-Lago raid and that NARA misled Congress. AFL launches additional investigation. Today, America First Legal filed a Freedom of Information Act request with the National Archives and Records Administration's Office of the Inspector General to obtain records related to the Biden White House's special access request for President Trump's records located at Mar-a-Lago. On August 8th, 2022, the Federal Bureau of Investigation conducted an unprecedented raid of Mar-a-Lago on the grounds that potentially classified records existed there. According to press reports, Biden administration aides were stunned to hear of this development. However, new NARA records obtained through America First Legal's investigation into the circumstances surrounding the Mar-a-Lago raid further confirmed that the FBI obtained access to these records through a special access request from the Biden White House on behalf of the Justice Department. And they enclose the partially redacted document. It appears that the Biden White House and DOJ coordinated to obtain the Trump records and perhaps create a pretext for the law enforcement raid by way of a special access request. What this effectively means is that there are substantial discrepancies between what the archives has told Congress and what appears in its internal communications. For example, Acting archivist Deborah Wall told Representative Mike Turner on August 16th, 2022, that NARA, quote, had not been involved in the DOJ investigation or any searches that it has conducted, end quote. This stunning revelation suggests that NARA was misleading Congress about the White House's role in the shocking raid of President Trump's home and the fact that the Biden White House was acting on behalf of the DOJ raises significant legal concerns. The special access statute authorizes special access requests to an incumbent president only when the records in question are needed for the conduct of current business of the White House. Providing documents to the DOJ for purposes of a criminal investigation is not the current business of the White House. Accordingly, America First Legal is demanding NARA turnover records related to the Biden White House's involvement in the politically motivated raid of President Trump's home. And they attach a statement from Reed Rubenstein, senior counselor and director of oversight and investigations for America First Legal. The evidence suggests that the ostensibly nonpartisan National Archives and Records Administration, 
misled Congress about the Biden White House's responsibility for the FBI's raid of former President Trump's home. The evidence further suggests that Biden officials in the executive office of the president and the Department of Justice unlawfully abused their power and then lied about it to the American people. This government, it seems, acknowledges no limits on its power to harass, intimidate, and silence its political opponents, said Reed D. Rubenstein. So the illegitimacy of the Mar-a-Lago raid and the Trump documents hoax, the boxes hoax, continues, as does its parallel, of course. This is from last week, Fox News. This is April 4th, a week ago. Representative Comer claims testimony by Biden's former assistant on classified docs undermines White House's narrative. So they lied about this, too. Whoops, I guess. President Biden's former executive assistant from his time as vice president testified before Congress on Tuesday that classified documents were spread out across three different locations in the nation's capital, then remained accessible to Penn Biden Center employees when they were transported there, according to House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer. And this is from April 4th, the very same day that Trump was arraigned and then blew the whole story up out of the water at a speech the very same night at Mar-a-Lago. Kathy Chung, who joined Biden's staff in 2012 and stayed in the role through the end of the Obama administration, sat down for a transcribed interview with the committee about classified documents that the president's attorneys say were first found at the Penn Biden Center on November 2nd, 2022. Another tranche of classified documents were later located at the president's home in Wilmington, Delaware. Representative Comer said that Chung, quote, provided startling information that undermines the Biden White House's narrative on the matter. Today, we learned that when Joe Biden left the vice presidency, boxes containing classified documents, vice presidential records and other items were stored in three different locations around the Washington, D.C. area, including an office near the White House, an office in Chinatown and eventually the Penn Biden Center. Representative Comer said in a statement. At some point, the boxes containing classified materials were transported by personal vehicles to an office location. The boxes were not in a locked closet at the Penn Biden Center and remained accessible to Penn Biden employees, as well as potentially others with access to the office space. We need to find out who had access to these documents. Man, I sure hope it wasn't the Chinese Communist Party, and I sure hope that they don't have any financial relationships with Joe Biden or the Penn Biden Center. And I hope Joe Biden and Hunter Biden aren't the type of people who would share American intelligence with foreign adversaries for the right price, considering they are already involved in implementing the exact same global agenda. I hope nothing like that could ever happen. I mean, I'm a conspiracy theorist. I'm just saying I hope that's not what happened. Comer went on to dispute the White House's timeline, claiming that, quote, then White House counsel Dana Remus tasked Kathy Chung with retrieving these boxes from the Penn Biden Center as early as May 2022. This story does not begin in November 2022, as represented by President Biden's attorney, Comer said. So Biden had his own classified document problem happening for three months before Trump's Mar-a-Lago boxes hoax problem began and six months before the public knew about Biden's classified document problem. Gosh, I'm beginning to feel like the illegitimate administration and the mainstream media lies to us. 
Remus did not immediately respond to a request for comment on Tuesday. Representative Jamie Raskin, you know, old Friar Cuck, whose father was a communist and whose wife is a communist and who is himself an avowed communist, the top Democrat on the House Oversight Committee, appeared to dispute Comer's characterization of Chung's testimony, saying she wasn't aware of classified documents at the Penn Biden Center until the president's attorneys found them there last November. Ms. Chung has cooperated with committee Republicans every step of the way, providing materials to investigators, voluntarily sitting for an interview and working in good faith with Congress, Representative Raskin said in a statement. She repeatedly explained that she was unaware there were alleged classified documents at the Penn Biden Center until November 2022, when the documents were first discovered by counsel for President Biden. And that is a funny little logical trick, isn't it? She was not aware that alleged classified documents were there. That doesn't mean that she doesn't know these documents were there, right? So if I had an issue of Sports Illustrated and it was classified, you might not know that I had a classified issue of Sports Illustrated on my coffee table, but you would know that I had an issue of Sports Illustrated on my coffee table. What he's really saying is that she admits the documents were there and didn't know they were classified, which even if true, only excuses blame from her and does nothing to excuse the blame from the fake president and his family. It actually only confirms their guilt and makes it worse, which is why Representative Raskin, being the conniving little communist he is, uses these kind of linguistic tricks. Chung, who was recommended to the president in 2012, by his son, Hunter Biden, now works as the Pentagon's deputy director of protocol. It's just like one big political criminal mafia family, isn't it? All you have to do is notice. There's also this from Comer last week. House Oversight Committee subpoenas banks, Biden family associates in probe of finances. The House Oversight Committee issued subpoenas to banks asking for Biden family associates financial records. Fox News has confirmed that the Oversight Committee subpoenaed Bank of America, Cathay Bank, J.P. Morgan Chase and HSBC USA NA, as well as former Hunter Biden business associate Mervyn Yan, asking for financial records. Jamie Raskin, the top Democrat on the Oversight Committee, complained that James Comer was trying to hide information regarding the investigation from Democrats on the committee. You have to love when they whine and complain about things they did themselves. In a statement to Fox News, Comer said, quote, Ranking member Raskin has again disclosed committee subpoenas in a cheap attempt to thwart cooperation from other witnesses. Given his antics with the first bank subpoena, the American people and media should be asking what information ranking member Raskin is trying to hide this time. No one should be fooled by ranking member Raskin's games. We have the bank records and the facts are not good for the Biden family. The Oversight Committee Democratic staff sent a memo to members Thursday, which accuses Republicans of conducting their investigation behind a, quote, veil of secrecy. And these are, by the way, the same people who wanted Adam Schiff and Eric Swalwell to remain on the House Intelligence Committee. 
despite their history of going out and lying to the press and saying they had the intelligence to back up their claims, but could not talk about the intelligence because it's classified. Turns out there wasn't any of that intelligence. They were making it up the whole time. These claims now ring hollow. Despite this massive investment of time and resources, Republicans' efforts on this and other congressional committees have failed to yield any evidence of misconduct by President Biden. Nevertheless, Chairman Comer has issued six document subpoenas for financial records as part of this renewed investigation, several of which have been based on information committee Republicans know to be false. The memo states, and again, same people who wanted Adam Schiff and Eric Swalwell on the Intelligence Committee. The Democratic memo alleges that Republicans haven't been publicizing their subpoenas or notifying Democrats, which has purportedly resulted in some targets of subpoenas being unaware that the committee is seeking their records. On February 27th, 2023, Chairman Comer secretly issued the committee's first document subpoena as part of committee Republicans ongoing investigation into the Biden family to Bank of America. This subpoena sought, among other information, all financial records from January 20th, 2009 to the present, a staggering 14 year period for John R. Walker, a private U.S. citizen. Yet because of Chairman Comer's use of a secret subpoena, Mr. Walker was never notified that the committee had subpoenaed his financial records from Bank of America. He was never notified that Bank of America turned over his records to the committee, and he was never notified that the committee was publicly releasing information from these records, the memo states. A spokesperson for Cathay Bank told Fox News Digital that the bank will cooperate with the oversight committee. Cathay Bank, a Nasdaq-listed U.S. financial institution for over 60 years, has cooperated with the House Committee on Oversight and Accountability's request for information. The bank intends to continue to cooperate with the committee, the spokesperson said. So Friar Cuck sounds like he's screaming and whining that everything is so unfair, and he is informing these people in Joe Biden and Hunter Biden's inner circle that their documents have been subpoenaed from banks. Can you imagine the uproar we would be hearing if this was reversed and Republicans were out there warning people that their financial records had been subpoenaed by Congress in an attempt to thwart investigations? These people are insane and their insanity, it should be realized, is a product of the existential crisis they're having. It's a product of their desperation and panic. Everything is falling apart. They are attempting to act like they are confident and in control. The other side is incompetent and dishonest. This tactic actually used to work when people trusted these fools and trusted the mainstream media. But neither of those things are true anymore. This is just blatant now. Again, all you have to do is notice. But they're not the only people losing their shit either. The Republican establishment is kind of beginning to confront the reality that Donald Trump is the only person with a chance to win that nomination unless he either drops out, dies, or the regime attempts to steal the primary elections from him in the broad light of day. And we will wrap it up with this from the conservative treehouse.com yesterday. Team DeSantis focused on creating AstroTurf attendance 
for 2024 campaign rallies. So this is just one day after we discuss how the illegitimate administration is hiring an army of social media influencers so that they can direct these people on what to say to their audiences. Apparently, Ron exclamation point needs some help in getting people to come to his events. As Team Ron DeSantis prepares for the national launch of a 2024 presidential bid, one of the campaign's primary areas of concern is the need to create optics representing support and momentum. As noted by comments delivered to the Washington Post by DeSantis PAC organizers, DeSantis allies are acutely aware of Trump's still strong influence and appeal in the Republican Party. A senior member of Never Back Down PAC has said that the group will be heavily involved in building crowds for DeSantis, in part because of Trump's fixation on crowd size and the expectation that a frontrunner candidate draws big audiences, according to a person familiar with the comments. Quote, if you're DeSantis, you have to desperately avoid the small room with Jeb Bush asking attendees to please clap, the person said, referencing a viral moment from Bush's unsuccessful presidential campaign in 2016. The last several weeks have been very tough for Team DeSantis, as noted by Politico. On the same day Trump was indicted in an alleged hush money scheme, the Florida governor was posing with puppies at a pet adoption event as his aides instructed reporters to leave. This is deja vu all over again, said Terry Sullivan, who ran Marco Rubio's 2016 campaign for president. Trump dominates media coverage, making it impossible for his competitors to get any coverage or forward traction. Isn't that incredible? Let's think about these three major facts so far in this article. One, Ron DeSantis cannot draw a crowd. Therefore, the people supporting this run, run, run effort that may or may not work. Again, it's still entirely possible that Ron DeSantis does not run and that all of this is just the exposure of all the people who want him to run as never Trump stooges of the regime. But putting that aside, we know that Ron DeSantis cannot draw crowds. The people around him understand that. And so they need to find a way to generate crowds around Ron DeSantis. That is number one. They understand that optically Ron's inability to draw crowds will be read by the world as the fact that Ron DeSantis has no support because the reality is that relative to Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis does not have any support. And then the other fact of note here is that it is no longer possible to create a public media narrative about a candidate from having him do tiny events where he takes pictures with puppies or goes and works in a pizza parlor, as Ron also did last week. They can't take those little photo ops and blow them up to the world and create a character out of those photo ops. Oh, look at Ron DeSantis, the guy who's nice to puppies, the guy who hangs out and makes a pizza. Ooh, look at him toss the dough in the air. He can spin it around on his finger. Vote for Ron. Well, that no longer works. And the entire establishment knows it. But why does that no longer work? Because people have tuned out the mainstream media narrative. It no longer has the function it used to have. It doesn't work. It doesn't have the effect. 
Think about how in the past we used to see Barack Obama fail at bowling or Hillary Clinton drink a beer or John Kerry go kiteboarding or Michael Dukakis ride around in a tank with a little helmet on. Now, those were all terrible optical failures, but that style of politicking has been predominant over at least my entire lifetime. They made Bill Clinton seem cool because Bill Clinton said that he preferred boxers to briefs and because he made it seem like he was maybe down with smoking some marijuana and because he played the saxophone. They humanized him. He really had a feel for what's going on. None of that works anymore. You cannot convince people that Ron DeSantis is a likable and popular political candidate by sending him to a pet store and having him cuddle some puppies when Donald Trump can go anywhere in the country and draw 10,000, 20,000, 50,000 people at a few days notice who literally chant, we love Trump. There is nothing comparable, not in size, not in scale, not in commitment, and not in effectiveness. It is nowhere close. I say this over and over again. It's like the scene in The Matrix where the little kid with the shaved head holds up the spoon and tells Neo that when you're ready, you will realize that there is no spoon. It's not that you're bending the spoon with your mind. There just is no spoon, and you are going to see what you want to see. The spoon is not even there. Well, there is no Ron. Ron DeSantis is an average governor. Let's even say he's a good governor. Let's even say he's a great governor. Still, all of that is a creation by the mainstream media, which is why so many normies in the world think that Ron DeSantis is the greatest and that everybody loves him. There is nothing in the real world besides the mainstream media that would lead anyone to believe that including, by the way, his record in Florida. The Republican primary was always expected to revolve around Trump, but post-indictment as Republicans rallied to his defense, including, crucially, conservative talkers on Fox News, Trump's opponents are confronting an even more damaging dynamic in the race, their inability to break through at all. It feels like effing 2016, said a Republican strategist who supports DeSantis and was granted anonymity to speak freely about the dynamics of the race. Is there anything that can suck up as much political oxygen in the American political landscape as Trump? I don't think so. Donald Trump even leads Ron DeSantis in the polls in Florida. Seriously, there is no Ron. And why, by the way, does Trump suck up all the oxygen in the room because he is simultaneously the most popular president in America, probably in American history, potentially in world history. And he's also the most dangerous to the regime. They literally can't afford not to cover him. And I'm not saying just financially, like for the television networks, they have to cover him for that. But in a narrative sense, they can't afford not to cover him either, because if they don't cover him, then we set the narrative as we already do, and they have nothing to dispute it. They have nothing to put up against it. So they can either let the reality stand and hope nobody notices, or they can go out and try to combat that reality. Nobody noticing is not an option because everybody notices. Everybody talks about it. We are a vast, vast majority and absolutely nothing can stop what is coming. All you have to do is notice. 
I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month, comes out to under a quarter per episode, and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com, and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree, linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm your moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash 
I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!